0: We're gonna be in Malachi, Malachi this morning. Would encourage you to open up there in your Bibles. Malachi chapter one, verses one through five will be our text. That can be found on page 953 if you're using a pew Bible. Uh, In baseball, one of the more significant roles on the team, at least in the major leagues, is is that of the closer. The closer is a pitcher, and the closer's job is to come into the game in the ninth inning and protect his team's lead. Often the lead is a mere one or two runs, and so the closer has little room for error. He is expected to get three outs without giving up a run. And of course, the really good closers are the closers who consistently get three outs without even allowing a base runner. When the New York Yankees had their heyday back in my childhood during the 90s, uh, arguably their best player during that time was a man named Mariano Rivera. And Mariano Rivera was the closer. I remember as a kid, when Rivera came into the game, it was all but over. He was that good. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Malachi? Well, we could say that Malachi is also something of a closer. Malachi is the one who comes in late to put the icing on the cake, so to speak. Uh, Of course, the, 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 the cake we're talking about is the cake of the Old Testament, right? Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. He is the last prophet whom God sends out of the bullpen, as it were, to speak his word to the people of Israel. There won't be another prophet after Malachi for some 400 years. Uh, until John the Baptist arrives on the scene, kicking off the New Testament. Now, who is Malachi? Leave your Bibles open, we'll, we'll get to the text, but but let's just lay some groundwork. Who is Malachi? Well, we don't really know who Malachi is. Malachi doesn't give us any information uh, about himself. The name Malachi means in Hebrew, my messenger it means my messenger because of this there are some people who have doubted whether malachi is even a proper name or if it's just perhaps someone's pen name there is an ancient jewish tradition that says malachi was simply the pen name of ezra the scribe now malachi likely is a proper name We have no reason to believe uh, that Malachi was not a real person with the name Malachi. But we must confess that there is something very ambiguous about his name. And his name here at at the end of the Old Testament truly reminds us that those who are tasked with speaking God's word really are no more than messengers they're no more than people who are speaking the word given to them by their king and as such god's messengers ought to be content with being relatively unknown in the eyes of the world and that's certainly certainly malachi now malachi uh, malachi has a burden that's about the only thing we know about him malachi has a burden the esv uh calls this prophecy of Malachi an oracle okay you can see that in chapter 1 verse 1 Uh, but listen to how the new king James version translates chapter 1 verse 1 it does it this way it says the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi all right so so the new king James version doesn't tell us Malachi has an oracle it tells us Malachi has a a burden And that's really the idea behind the Hebrew word that stands at the head of this prophetic book. This message which Malachi has been given by God to share with the people, this message is a burden. It's a load, it's heavy, it's something he has to get off his back. Okay, that's the idea here. Now when did Malachi prophesy? When were these words spoken to God's people? Well, it's generally believed that Malachi prophesied about the time of Nehemiah. The reason for this uh, is that it's evident in Malachi's prophecy that the temple has been rebuilt and the worship of God has been restored in Jerusalem. Even more than that, Malachi addresses many of the same sins that Nehemiah addresses, sins such as mixed marriages and a failure to tithe and corrupt priests and social injustice. This would then place Malachi's ministry somewhere between the years 400 and 450 BC. Actually, I did that backwards. It'd be between 450 and 400 BC because on that side uh, of history we're we're counting down. That would be about 100 years after the exiles returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Anyway, Malachi's message basically boils down to this, all right? If we would summarize the message of Malachi into one sentence, it would be this. The Lord is coming, and y'all aren't ready. The Lord is coming, and y'all, you all, aren't ready. The part about the Lord's coming is seen in Malachi 3, verse 1. Okay, that's a key verse in this book. There we read, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Okay, that's the brunt of Malachi's message. The Lord is coming. And yet throughout this, throughout this book, we see on multiple occasions, these people aren't ready. And throughout this book, the Lord, through Malachi, he takes his people to task for their spiritual apathy and for their half-hearted obedience. And he calls them to repentance, so that when the Lord comes, they might receive him with joy and gladness rather than with a fearful expectation of judgment. Now that right there is why Malachi is a good book to study in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Believe it or not, we're talking about Christmas already. I, I wrote actually, I saw a house in Borculo on my way to church with its Christmas tree up. I actually know the people. I'm gonna go knock on their door. It's way too early for your Christmas tree to be up. Anyways, uh, yes, we're, 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 we're looking ahead at Christmas and this is the book we're gonna study uh, up to Christmas because what's Christmas about? Christmas too is about the Lord's coming. First as a baby in Bethlehem but then also again uh, in glory on the last day and for these comings too we must be ready. And in this prophecy of Malachi he will help us get ready for the Lord's coming as he puts his finger on some of our sins and calls us again to repent of them and believe the gospel in order that we might receive the Lord's coming with joy and gladness. Now the book of Malachi, it consists of six disputes, all right, six disputes between God and his people. This morning we're looking at the first dispute and this first dispute concerns the matter of God's love. One more little note before we read the text. It's interesting, I think, that Malachi begins here with this dispute about God's love. Uh, The Puritan John Owen believed and wrote about how many Christians that he encountered, they suffered from spiritual anemia and spiritual apathy precisely because they were not deeply convinced that their Heavenly Father loved them. That's what Owen said. The reason for the spiritual apathy he encountered in ministry, he said, was because people are not deeply convinced that their Heavenly Father loves them. That's certainly the case in Malachi. These people, as we'll see, they're suffering from spiritual apathy. And right at the beginning of this prophecy, the prophet gets to the heart of the matter. It's because they don't really, truly, deeply believe that their Father in heaven loves them. Let's read this first dispute together. Malachi 1, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord but you say how have you loved us is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I have hated I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert if Edom says we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins the Lord of hosts says they may build but I will tear down And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Malachi's prophecy begins with an assertion. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now let's understand that these these words which begin this last book of the Old Testament are words which really summarize the message of the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament is really fundamentally, basically the story of God's love for his people. It begins in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. God confronts them for it, but God does not condemn them for it. Instead, he promises them a savior. He says, from this woman will come one who crushes the serpent's head. And in that, we hear these words, don't we? I have loved you. And then then after the flood, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat and Noah and his family and all those animals, they exit the ark and God makes a covenant with Noah. God says, never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God seals that covenant by placing his bow in the clouds. And in that too, we hear these words, don't we? I have loved you. And then God comes to Abraham and God comes to Isaac, and God comes to Jacob, and God makes a covenant with them. God says, I will be a God unto you and your descendants after you. And in that covenant too, we hear these words, don't we? I have loved you. And what else can we say? There's there's the Red Sea parted so God's people can escape from Egypt. There's the Jordan River stopped, so God's people can walk right into the promised land. There's the sun standing still, so Israel can avenge themselves on their enemies. There's the law, there's the prophets, there's King David and the promise given to him that he will never fail to have a descendant on the throne. Yes, there is the exile, which was the result of Israel's sin, uh, but even then, There's redemption and there's restoration, right? In all of these things that take place in the Old Testament, we hear these words. I have loved you. The whole Old Testament is the story of God's love for his people. And when God then sends in the closer, when he sends in Malachi, this is the first thing he has Malachi say, people of God, let's get this straight. People of God, let's understand the events up to this point aright. I have loved you, declares the Lord. You know, these, these words, they 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 don't just capture the story of the Old Testament. These words also capture the story of the believer's life. These words also capture your story and my story in Christ. Okay. Each of us as believers in Jesus can and should look back on our lives, even now and see the twists and the turns, the ups and the downs, the people and the provision, the discipline and the restoration. And we should recognize what God says to us about all of it. I have loved you, declares the Lord. Reminded of what uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says, question and answer, uh, actually, it's Lord's Day 10. I think it's question and answer 20 or 21. But it says, what do you understand by the providence of God? And then it gives this answer. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power whereby, as with his hand, he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand." Indeed, we look back on our lives We hear this from the Lord, I have loved you. Let's continue in the text because we see that this wonderful, beautiful assertion made by God to his people is followed by an indictment made by God against his people. Second half of verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Do you see what's going on? The people of Malachi's day were doubting God's love. God says to his people, I have loved you. And the people of Malachi's day were responding by saying in their hearts or maybe even out loud, "Uh, yeah, yeah, we, we don't think so. Yeah, God, we're, uh, we're not so sure about that. The people of Malachi, they're doubting God's love. Now, let's get this straight, people of God. This is a sin. This is a sin. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says what? It says, we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Well, guess what? The one who doubts God's love is not trusting in the Lord with all their heart. This is a sin. When you doubt God's love, when you question God's love, when you challenge God's love, you are sinning. Now, why are the people of Malachi's day doubting God's love? What was causing them to doubt God's love? Well, in one word, I would say disappointment. Disappointment. When the exiles had returned to Jerusalem, some 100 years before this, they did so with with high hopes. The prophet Zechariah had told them that once the temple was rebuilt, the nations would stream into it. 100 years later, it it hasn't happened. In fact, Nehemiah 7.4 says that the city was wide and it was large, but there were few people in it. The prophet Zechariah also said that, that once the temple was rebuilt, the Lord, he would go forth before his people like lightning and he would rescue them from their oppressors. The exiles looked forward to to the great victory that God would win on their behalf. But 100 years later, they're still living under Persian rule. Going back further, the prophet Jeremiah said that uh, uh, the Lord, he had plans to prosper his people in bringing them back to the promised land. Malachi 3.11 indicates that these people had experienced failed crops and economic hardships because of natural disasters. Hardly the prosperity that Jeremiah supposedly spoke about. It was just, it was a disappointing time. The people returned to Jerusalem, uh, expecting a return to the glory days of David and Solomon, and it wasn't happening. They're still small in number, a nobody so far as the nations of the earth are concerned, they're still ruled by a foreign king. And they're struggling to get by. It was, just, it, was just a, it was just a disappointing time. And they look around at their circumstances, they look around at how things are going in their lives, and they're saying, really, God? Really, you, you love us? Because, uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really feel like it. And God calls, that up, calls them out for it here. God says, I've loved you, but right now, people of God, I know what's going on in your heart. You're doubting my love. Let me ask, might God be calling you out here today as well? Might you, might you be saying today in your heart, really, Lord? You, You call this love? I mean, I'm in pain every day. Might you be saying, really, Lord, you call this love? Have you seen what happens to those getting chemotherapy? Really, Lord, you call this love? Have you seen my finances? Have you seen my grades? Have you seen my grief? Have you seen my children? Have you seen my stress? Have you seen my loneliness? You call this love? Really? A couple years ago, a woman in my congregation was going through one of these just rotten times. Uh, her son, actually she was going through something many of us never had to experience. Her son uh, had been convicted of murder. And she, she was carrying the weight of that. There were other difficulties in her life as well. And, and, and one afternoon she came into my office and she said, pastor, pastor, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. But I go through life feeling as if God hates me. What was she doing there? She was being honest, and I appreciated that, but, but, but she was. She was doubting God's love. Okay, people of God, this, this sin is no less real today than it was in Malachi's day we still doubt god's love i have gone through times in my life when i've doubted god's love i have i'm guessing many of you have as well this sin is no less real today than it was in malachi's day well let's notice all right god responds to this question of our sinful hearts and just in that just in the fact that god responds i think there is there is mercy and there is kindness and there is love I mean, I mean, we're questioning God here. We're questioning the one whom all the earth should be silent before. God does not need to answer, but he does. Why? Because, because that's the kind of God he is. Our God is slow to anger. Our God is abounding in steadfast love. We see that here in Malachi where the Lord responds to these people who are complaining about his love. And so as people have asked, how have you loved us? And God says, let me tell you how I've loved you. I've loved you undeservedly. That's the first thing God says. I've loved you undeservedly. This is the lesson of Jacob and Esau. God asks his people, is not Esau Jacob's brother? The well-known answer, of course, is yes. Jacob is Esau's brother. Esau is Jacob's brother. More than that, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. The boys wrestled with one another in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. And yet, as God's people also knew, only one of these two brothers was loved by God as God himself reminds them here. Yet, I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Now don't get hung up on that word hated, okay, as if somehow that compromises God's character. This is a holy hatred. This is a righteous hatred. This is a just hatred. It's the hatred which sinners deserve from the God they've rebelled against and want nothing to do with. This hatred we see in scripture, it's intimately bound up With God's wrath, which is heavy upon sinners because of their sin. About a century ago, there was a a great Bible teacher. His name was Dr. Arno Gabeline. And someone once came to him and said, Dr. Gabeline, I have a serious problem with Malachi 1 verse 3, where God says he hates Esau. Dr. Gabeline responded, you know, that's funny. I have a serious problem with Malachi 1 verse 2, where God says he loves Jacob. Jacob. Isn't that true? That that is the real problem. If you read the story of Jacob, you're going to ask that question: How could God love Jacob? I mean, Jacob, like Esau, was a wretched, rotten sinner. Jacob was selfish. Jacob was deceitful. Jacob played favorites with his children. Jacob sought to obtain the Lord's blessing by his own strength. There is nothing about Jacob that is lovable. And yet God loved Jacob. Why? That's the question. Why? Paul actually answers that question in Romans chapter 9. This is what Paul writes in Romans 9. He says, Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, Rebecca was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Paul asks, Is God unjust? No, not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There the Apostle Paul makes it clear, if we didn't get it already, that the reason God loved Jacob is not because of anything in Jacob. God loved Jacob before Jacob was born. God loved Jacob before Jacob had even the opportunity to do anything good or bad. The reason God loved Jacob isn't because of anything in Jacob. It's simply because God, by his sovereign grace, chose to love Jacob. And as Jacob's life unfolds in scripture, we see, we've all seen it. Jacob didn't deserve this love. Not at all. Not one bit. But then again, no one does, right? No one does. And that's why, that's why God points us to Jacob here. We've asked God, how have you loved us? And God says, I've loved you like I love Jacob. Undeservedly. I love the words in a song. We've sang it a few times since I've been here. The song is Relentless Love, and the last time we sang this song, there was words in it that that really hit me. Uh, It was these, it says, Relentless love embraced my soul in ages past. Love undeserved, unknown, yet deep and vast. God set his love on me, on me in spite of me. That's what it says. God set his love on me, on me. In spite of me, the believer in Jesus knows that's how it is. God doesn't set his love on me because of me. He sets his love on me in spite of me. I don't deserve it, not at all. In fact, I deserve the contrary. I deserve his wrath. Why would he show me love? Because God will have mercy On whom he will have mercy when I began seminary uh, right when I began seminary 2010 my friend uh, got deployed to Iraq for the year and uh, as he was getting his affairs in order to leave for Iraq my friend realized that he had a small fuel-efficient Chevy Cavalier that he no longer needed he said Dirk I wanna give you this car because I know you're now going to be driving from Hudsonville to the East Belt line every day, and this little car is good on gas. It was. It was great on gas. It was also a piece of junk. <laughs> it wasn't worth anything. The, 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 the fan, The blower fan, it made an absolute racket when I drove. I actually wasn't sure if it was blowing air out or if the air was just sort of seeping out. All right? The thing pulled hard to the right. I mean, like, but it ran. And it served us well for two years. Now, let me ask, upon, upon receiving this free car from my friend, would it have been appropriate for me to grumble and complain to my friend about this car. Would it have been appropriate for me to say, you know, Bill, that car you gave me, it's a piece of junk, man. Couldn't you have fixed the fan first before you gave it to me? Couldn't you have you got it aligned so it didn't pull to the right? Oh, that wouldn't have been appropriate at all. And so it is with God's love. Now let's be clear, I'm not saying God's love is a piece of junk cavalier. We all know that's not the case. But let's recognize God has given us his love freely out of his own gracious heart. And when we who don't deserve it, complain about it, when we say in our hearts, oh yeah, God, how have you loved me? We're like that person who complains to their friend about the free car he gave them to help them out. Well, God gives a second answer to the question, how have you loved us? The first answer was, I have loved you undeservedly. The second answer God gives is this, I've loved you mercifully, I've loved you mercifully. After reminding his people of the distinction he made between Jacob and Esau, God now tells his people how his rejection of Esau is working itself out in history. And God says, for I have laid waste his hill country, and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Esau's hill country being referred to here is the kingdom of Edom. Edom, E-D-O-M. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about the Edomites, They were a group of people who settled on the south side of the Red Sea and shared a border with Judah. They were a constant thorn in Israel's side and they were the descendants of Esau. Okay, so this nation originated in the exact same womb as the Israelites. But whereas Israel was chosen and loved by God in accordance with his covenant to Jacob, Edom was hated and rejected by God in accordance with his word To Esau. Anyway, history tells us that the ancient kingdom of Edom began to come undone about the same time God's people returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Apparently, there were some raiders from the desert, Nabataean Arabs, they're called. And these raiders from the desert, they ransacked Edomite territory. And many of the Edomites were forced to flee for their lives, and many of them ended up down south in the Sinai Peninsula. Now, it's clear that this happened by the time Malachi prophesied. Because what does God say through Malachi? He says, I've, I've done this, right? I've laid waste his hill country. Now, here's the thing. God, God did the same thing to... To Jerusalem. He did the same thing to his own people. He laid waste Jerusalem. He made Jerusalem a lair for jackals. That's what Jeremiah 9 verse 11 says. Okay, God did the same thing to Jerusalem when they were conquered by the Babylonians. Both Jacob and Esau then, Israel and Edom, they suffered because of their sins. They both did. But God's people have since returned to Jerusalem. God's people have since come back and they've rebuilt the temple and they've rebuilt their city. And God here says, there's no such hope for Edom. Verse four, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, the people whom the Lord is angry with forever. God here says to his people, there will be no restoration for Edom. There will be no returning and rebuilding for Edom like there was for you. And God says this judgment upon Edom for their wickedness will be so thorough and so complete that ultimately it will evoke praise from his people. That's verse 5. He says, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Interestingly enough, the Edomites, hey, we have the benefit of hindsight. The Edomites never did rebuild their city. In the New Testament, we read about the Edumaeans, I-D-U, Mayans, if that makes sense, the Edumaeans. Those were people of Edomite descent, but it's a well-documented fact that after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the Edomites, as a people, ceased to exist in this world in any real, measurable way. Go look it up online, (laughs) research it yourself. The Edomite people are a people lost to history. Now, I must confess that when I discovered that this week, I got chills down my spine. And I said with Malachi, "Uh, yeah, great is the Lord. (laughs) Beyond the border of Israel. Fulfilled prophecy will have that effect on God's people. Anyway, the people of Malachi's day asked, what? How have you loved us? And now God says, look at Edom. Look at those descendants of Esau whom I hated. Look at those wicked people who have had no use for me or my word or my ways. Look at them. Observe my wrath as it's being poured out upon them and recognize I haven't even come close to treating you as your sins deserve. Not even close. And we know it's true, don't we? Even when life is hard, and even when life is disappointing, and even when life is not going the way we want, the Christian knows deep down in his heart that God isn't even close to treating him as his sins deserve. I'm reminded of of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was writing shortly after Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. He was writing during a horrific time. A horrific time in the life of God's people. And yet this is what Jeremiah says in the midst of that horrific time. He says, he that is God has made my teeth grind on gravel. He's made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you see what Jeremiah recognized there? Even in the midst of great trial and great difficulty, he recognized the Lord's merciful love. He did. Let me ask, can can you, you see it today? In your daily bread, in your strength and ability to be here this morning, in your spouse, in your loved ones, can you see it? How even in wrath, God always remembers mercy for his children. His love is always a merciful love. He never treats us as our sins deserve. And so we ask, right, in the sinfulness of our hearts, God, how have you loved us? And God says, I've loved you undeservedly, and I've loved you mercifully, that's how. Of course, we, we do remember, this is, this is only the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi marks the end of the Old Testament, but, but not the end of the story. No, there's, there's more to the story. And there's a sense, isn't there, as the lights are about to go out on the Old Testament where God provides yet a a third answer to this question, how have you loved us? And the third answer here at the end of the Old Testament goes something like this, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. For as the New Testament writers tell us, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And again, but God shows, God proves, his amazing love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Make no mistake, people of God, we have even less reason to doubt God's love today than the people of Malachi's day did. For unlike them, we've, we've been to Bethlehem. We've, we've stood beside the Sea of Galilee. We've looked up at the cross of Jesus. We've beheld the empty tomb. Are you doubting God's love today? If so, repent. Confess that sin to God and receive his forgiveness. And then with the help of his Holy Spirit, look to Christ. Look to Christ and believe the words spoken by your Father in heaven long ago through the prophet Malachi. I have loved you says the Lord. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we rejoice in the truth which Malachi sets before us this morning, that you, the creator of heaven and earth, have loved us. Father, we confess that we are quick to doubt Your love when things don't go as we think they ought to go. Forgive us for our sins, and enable us to look to Christ and to truly believe that You love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.